If you will, please stay standing, and we'll begin with the reading of God's Word. Casey has been walking us through um, the Sermon on the Mount. He has taken a, a good amount of time to really dive into the depths of the Beatitudes. I'm really happy to tell you today that we're out of the Beatitudes, and I'm going to speed through one whole verse today. So, just in case you weren't here for the Beatitudes, let's start back at verse 3 in the book of uh, chapter 5, verse 3 of the book of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it is, it no longer, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled under the feet. Please be seated. The Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers wrote a fantastic book called The Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the very introduction of his books, he gives a stern warning to his readers, saying that we need to beware of placing the Lord as our teacher first instead of our Savior first. That tendency is prevalent today. It's a dangerous tendency. We must know him as a Savior before his teaching can have any meaning to us before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal which leads to nothing but despair. If Jesus is a teacher only, then all he could do is tantalize us by erecting a standard that we cannot come anywhere near. But if by being born again from above we know him as Savior first, we know that he did not come to teach us only, but he came to make us. We stress that he came to make us and to what he teaches us we should be. The Sermon on the Mount ends up being a statement of the life that a Christian will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. There truly is danger in only seeing Jesus as a teacher first. There are two major misinterpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is this idea of liberal theology that takes us to the idea that Jesus was merely a great teacher and he taught great morals. In this theological leaning, the Sermon on the Mount is separated from the rest of the entirety of Scripture. It denies the miraculous claims of the Bible, it rejects the supernatural claims of the Bible, and it explains away the full deity of Christ. The other side of that is the misinterpretation that leads us to pure legalism. It takes the high and frankly impossible demands of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and explicitly ties them to salvation. 
They take verse, especially 48 in chapter 5, where Christ says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and makes that a requirement for salvation. Thankfully, we know that is not what Christ was teaching here, and we have the entirety of Scripture to look at today. The full revelation of who Jesus is, what salvation is, who we are, and the completed work of Christ. Once you take that into account, those two interpretations, the liberal idea that Jesus was purely a good teacher or that we must attain perfection to receive salvation, become downright impossible. It becomes an offense to the gospel itself. So I hope that as we look at this text today, not only this verse today, but everything that Casey has preached so far, everything that we're going to continue to see in the Sermon on the Mount, that will remind us what Chambers warns us about, to look at the correct correct interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, and remind us that Christ came to make believers into what he teaches them to be. We must remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life that we will live, not should live, not can live, that we will live if the Holy Spirit has his way with us. Casey's done an amazing job walking us verse by verse through the Beatitudes, and I think he has made this point each week, and I want to make it again that we need to recognize that when we go through the Beatitudes, that is believers. Believers are the only ones that can be poor in spirit, that can recognize their sin. Believers are the only ones that can mourn over that sin. Believers are the only ones that their sin and their recognition of who they are and who God is makes them meek and mild. They're the only ones that can hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the only ones that show the external fruit of the rest of the Beatitudes. We cannot forget that, yes, these are ideals that we should strive for every day. There are things that believers that should love, they should seek after. But it is only through Christ that we are able to do these things. Be reminded that before Christ, without the intervention of Christ, we're left with what Paul says in Romans 3, that none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good. So we should desire to live these things out. We'll see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we're commanded to live these things out but it is only the work of Christ that will make us able to live these things out. A liberal Christian will tell you that these ideas in the Sermon on the Mount are purely the foundation for a a social, moral justice in this world. If we want social justice, we should treat people in this way. The legalist will tell you that these are the requirements for salvation. But Christ himself tells you that they are the result of a person being brought from death to life. They are the results of a heart turning from stone to flesh. They're the results of the forgiveness of sin. They are not commands that we must follow. It is the outpouring of what Christ has done. 
So my prayer for us today and every day that we look at the Sermon on the Mount is reminded of what Oswald Chambers said. That we look at the Sermon on the Mount as an encouragement to us that Christ will make us into what he teaches us we should be. That if the Holy Spirit has his way with us, and if you are a believer, that is a promise in Scripture that the Holy Spirit will have his way with you. Then we will be these things. So every time we come to a difficult passage, every time we come across something that seems impossible for us to do, every time you may read a command and be discouraged, because it's hard to keep, let's remember that Christ came to make us into what he teaches us to be. Now, you can look at this and say, where do, where do we come up in the Sermon on the Mount with this concept that Christ is making believers what he teaches us we should be? And that's our verse today. Because it starts out in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus doesn't say that you have to be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say that you can be. He doesn't say that you should be. He says, right after the Beatitudes, right after he says that these are the people that are blessed, that you are these things. And we have to be very careful because we can look at the Sermon on the Mount and you go back to verse 1 and 2, you see the, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. As Casey has reminded us over and over again, I'll remind you again today, Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount to his followers. Were there unbelievers there? I'm sure there were. Were there people that walked away from the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount unbelievers? I am positive there were. But Jesus sat down to teach the followers of Christ. When we open our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount, we can see the bold headings in there. And sometimes it's easy to look at the Sermon on the Mount and look at this as individual teachings and break them apart by the headings. So if, you, if, you, if your Bible's anything like mine, you're going to see the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in a section that's called Salt and Light. We just got done with the Beatitudes. If we move forward, we're going to see uh, Christ came to fulfill the law, anger, lust, divorce. We get into all these topics of things that believers should do. We need to remember those are not Scripture. That is added to help us be able to study Scripture, to be able to talk about it. The verses, the paragraphs, uh, the titles in there were not originally there. So we must look at this as a single sermon. So we immediately, right after Christ says that you are blessed to be persecuted in his name, he comes back and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are these things. Again, not you can be, not you should be, not you must be, but that you are. And that's because of the inward and outward work of Jesus Christ that Casey has been talking about for weeks through the Beatitudes. Those first four being the inward work that God does in a believer, the, the next four being the outflow of that work that's being done in the believer. 
is where Christ can come back and say, because of that inward and outward work, the believer is blessed. Even in persecution in this world, they're blessed because of the work that Christ has done. You, if you are a believer, are the salt of the earth. It's an interesting metaphor that he uses here. And we could go through a lot of history on the metaphor. Some of it's very interesting, some of it's not so interesting, unless you really like weird history. But what we can all agree on, that even today, if you were to Google the most needed minerals on earth for life, salt is going to be at the very top of that list. Especially so during the time when Jesus was preaching and teaching. The very top of a requirement for life. If you look at ancient history, some of the longest ancient Roman roads were built specifically for the purpose of transporting salt. If you've ever heard the term that someone is worth their salt, it's because Roman soldiers were paid in salt. If you earn a salary and you go and you're a word nerd like I am, you can go look at the Latin behind it that is based off of the word salt. Salt was and still is this critical element to human life. I promise that's all the boring history. Uh, but I do want to look at three specific properties of salt that we can look at today. And the first one's actually the hardest one, at least for me. Salt is offensive. That doesn't sound right to us today, because we mainly use it to flavor our food. I mean, we, we love salt. Salt, in and of itself, is offensive. If you want to kick someone that's already down, there's, we already have a term for it, you're going to put salt in the wound. Believers are the salt in the wound that is a broken and sinful world. We can look all over Scripture. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved is the power of God. In Romans, and forgive me, I'm going to skip around quite a bit here, uh, so we're not here all day. But in Romans, Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. For they know about what they know about God is plain to them, but God, because God has shown it to them. We skip ahead a little bit. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became dark, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creation the creature rather than the creator. This sounds, this could be written about today. And we can keep going. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
The unbeliever is filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip. They're slanderers. They hate God. They're insolent. They're haughty. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. Christ himself sits here and tells you, you are the salt of the world. You are offensive to the world. What Christ has made you to be as a believer is offensive to unbelievers, and it should be. When salt comes into contact with a broken, wounded world, the world despises it. And you don't have to look far outside these doors to see that. The wounded world, when it comes into contact with salt, should recoil in pain. It wretches at every touch of the gospel, and persecution will come because of it. Again, go back to that very last part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. Salt is offensive to the wounded world. Second property, probably the most important during this time in history, we still use it today. Salt is meant to be a preservative. If we look at sinful man, it, 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 ourselves included, if we were left to ourselves with no intervention from God, we will naturally die in sin. You can look out these doors today, the sinful world is decaying, it's diseased, it is rotting, and it is putrefying in its sin. Now that sounds pretty hopeless, but we can go back all the way to the creation story and start to see the Lord's forbearance towards sinners. The fact that we have sinned and we are not dead right then and there shows God's forbearance towards sinners, his mercy in not stamping out the entirety of mankind at that first sight of disobedience. We see God's grace extended in salvation. Even in God's created order, we see what is necessary for the preservation of society in a lost world. The concept of marriage, even though we fight that tooth and nail today, is meant for the preservation in a sinful world. 
The idea of what a home should be, what a father should be, what a mother should be, how kids should be taught, what we should be teaching them. Again, read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. You will see this is meant to be a preservation of what God has created in a sinful world. As much as you not, may not like it, government is a preservation in this world. Laws are meant to restrain the evil of men. But I will say that the most powerful, powerful preservative, aside from Christ himself, that we see in Scripture is the church. It is the believer. It is those whom he has redeemed through the work of his son, those whom he has called to salvation. The theologian RVG Tasker wrote, believers are the moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. Oddly enough, Christianity is often blamed for the woes of the world. And while there are times in history we should be embarrassed by as Christians, where maybe some overzealous Christians did some bad things, we shouldn't deny that. We can't overlook at how Christianity has actually benefited and preserved the world. Music came from the church. Art came from the church. If you've been to any type of higher education, higher education came from the church. Even the ideas that we talk about so much today that get talked about outside these doors of social justice, moral right, how we should treat people, how we should love people, those ideas come from the church. The idea of caring for the needy came from the church. The ideas of taking care of widows and orphans, it came from the church. So when God says that you are the salt of the earth, you as the believer, you as the church are the preservative here that is meant to hold back the decay of this world. We could go on and on with this, but the ideas that were brought into Western culture through Christianity, specifically the ideas given to us in Scripture, specifically devoted believers that carried on these traditions. The fact that you have a Bible in your hand today that's in your own language, that you will not be arrested for reading, that you will not be executed for owning. This is due to Christ and the preservative qualities that is granted to every believer. The last property I want to cover is salt, and it's the one that we know the most today. Salt is flavorful. Salt adds flavor to anything it touches. I challenge anyone to describe what the flavor of salt is besides using the word salty. That's all you can really do. If you talk to high-minded chefs that'll give you eloquent words about it, they're still going to come back and say salty. But what they'll generally come back with, then they'll correctly point out, is that when it comes to flavoring, salt is used to enhance the flavor of what's already there. It is to make it better. It takes whatever already is there and makes it more flavorful. 
One complaint that I often hear from unbelievers is the idea that Christians are somehow these boring, humdrum people that somehow because we follow Christ, we give up the flavorful things in the world. We give up the things that our flesh wants. We give up tasting everything the world has to offer. We live a life of denying ourselves a pleasure. We commit the ultimate cultural sin of limiting ourselves to, this is crazy, one partner. We limit ourselves to the biblical standard of marriage, to that being one man and one wife forever. People say that we as Christians build a life around hating everyone that's not a believer. But I would challenge you that the world that is consumed with sin, while they see us as boring, as loveless, as hateful, we are made so much more through our belief, through our faith, through the work of Christ. So the question comes to where, where is the zest of life found? Show me an unbeliever, I'll show you a person that doesn't understand their purpose. Show me a believer, and I hope they begin to understand their purpose. The pleasures that we deny as believers are the pleasures that lead to death, whereas we have the gospel that leads to eternal life. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth saying, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and, and through us leads, uh, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Through the work of Christ... Again, we are the salt of the earth. We have that zest of life. We have that understanding of who we are and what we're here to do to the point that even in persecution, even in suffering, even in times of just great pain for us, a believer can find joy in it. I would challenge you, again, just look at those first words of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. We could stop there, but the verse continues, so we probably should too. It continues, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, you can go pick one of the commentaries off of Minor Casey's uh, library out there, and you will probably get a different answer in every one of what this means. I believe that this is a rhetorical question that Jesus asks here. If salt is no longer salty, what's it good for? If salt is not offensive to the wounds of the world, what good is it? If salt doesn't act as the preservative to hold back the decay of a dying world, what good is the salt? If salt has no flavor, what good is it? And he answers his own question saying, it's good for nothing. It's good to be thrown out and be trampled on the ground. We have a couple of options of how we can look at this text. 
One is an incredibly discouraging option that, let me start out by saying, I believe goes against Scripture as a whole. But one option that people do take is to say that we can lose our salvation, that Christ imparts us with this salt of salvation, but we can lose it. Somehow, Christ can want us to be saved, save us, but we are more powerful to the point that we can lose it. That doesn't make any sense. And it goes against so much of Scripture. The second option, I believe, is the correct interpretation of this. True believers are called by God to salvation. Salvation only comes from the completed work of Christ, and salvation will, will bring about these inward and outward qualities found in the Beatitudes. You will be the salt of the earth. We're going to look next week. You will be the light of the world if you have been saved. The completed work of Jesus Christ makes believers the salt of the earth, not what we do. We are unable to do that apart from Christ. And nothing, if a man is truly saved, can make salt lose its saltiness. Now, I believe we can defend this in Scripture. Paul writes in Ephesians that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Romans, and we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to his purpose. For them whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That leaves no room for losing salvation. Christ himself said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. A little bit before that, Christ said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The salt of salvation cannot be lost. So I'd encourage each of us to examine ourselves this morning. Have you been made the salt of the earth? Does your lifestyle reflect the work that Christ has done in you? Or do you look more like the unbelieving world? Do you desire to live a life 
that offends the world around you and will bring you persecution? Are you a preservative in the world? Are you working to hold back the sin and decay around you? Can you find joy in your life because of what Christ has accomplished for you? At the end of the day, do you bear the fruit of salvation or do you merely claim salvation by name only? This is the beauty and the simplicity of the Sermon on the Mount. We are called to ideals of perfect righteousness. Every man, woman, and child, believer or not, are called to the ideals of perfect righteousness. And this is impossible without the work of Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man can boast. A believer is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if you have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, you will produce fruit. Many look at these passages and say, these are the things I must do. I I became a Christian, I got baptized, now I have this list of things I have to do. No, you have this list of things that you will do if God has done this work in your heart. You will be poor in spirit. You will mourn your sin. You will be meek. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be merciful. You'll be pure of heart. You'll be peacemakers. You will be the salt of the earth. Now, some may hear this, and what I mean to be encouraging may sound discouraging. You may sit there today and be discouraged by this idea because you look at your own life and you say, yes, I do these things, but I do them so imperfectly. I mess up so much. This is the encouragement. You will do these things. We are being conformed into the image of Christ one day to be glorified as Christ is. Does that mean that we should sit by and just not worry about it? No. What happens when we fail? That should bring us back to these beatitudes. That it should cause us to be poor in spirit. It should cause us to mourn. It should cause meekness in our lives. And it should cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you know me, I don't share a lot personally, except for maybe to a few people. I will say, you probably noticed I have not been in the pulpit in a while. I have not taught in a while. And I'm free to admit, and I'm okay with it. If you'd asked me a few months ago, I wouldn't be okay with this that I had a period of anxiety and depression and anger over what 
at times you feel like God does to you health-wise, over the decisions that you make in your own life, over this idea of we know what God calls us to be, but how can we fail so spectacularly every day? It's been a joy to sit under Casey's teaching to look at these Beatitudes before we even get into these deeper ideas of let's talk about divorce and lust and sexual immorality and how you love your enemies, before we even get to that and be reminded that this is not a work of you. If you are poor in spirit, if you mourn your sin, if you are meek, you didn't do that. Christ did it in you. And if Christ did it in you, when we fail so spectacularly at times, we can be reminded that it is Christ working in us and he he will succeed where we will fail every day of the week. As we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, please don't look at this as legalistic ideals that we sign up for when you get baptized. Definitely don't think that doing these things makes you saved. Don't think that it's going to save you. We're going to talk about hard topics. And the reason we're going to talk about them is Jesus talked about them in this sermon. Anger, um, lust, divorce, how we take oaths, how we retaliate or not retaliate against people, how we treat our enemies, and so and just on and on and on. So I'd urge us as we look through this, that we look at this as an encouragement of this is what we are being called to as believers. Again, as as Oswald, Oswald Chambers wrote, he came to make us what he teaches us to be. The Sermon on the Mount is not this list of rules that we must follow or somehow we fail. It is a list of what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit should look like in a believer. I would encourage you, if you're here today and you've not experienced this grace, this mercy, this encouragement of Christ's work and salvation, it's, it's, a, it's such a simple thing. Once again, not a work that I'm going to sit here and do in your heart today, not a work that you're going to sit there and do in your heart today. It's a work that God is going to do. But the recognition that we sin against a holy God and that sin deserve, we deserve death. We deserve to be eternally separated from our Creator. That is what we deserve. But the good news is the gospel is that Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. And he took on the fullness of the wrath that we earn for ourselves so that those who believe can be reunited with God. What is the list of things you must do to be saved? Repent and believe. Even that, God grants you. Put your faith in Christ for salvation. If you don't know what that means, if you want to talk about it, talk to Casey, talk to I, talk to, grab a stranger in here if you don't know anyone. Grab them and ask them about this. But I will remind you that if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, take a hold of what Christ has done for you. Don't look at Scripture as this 
set of things that we must do, that we're now bound to do because of work that Christ did to us. Look at it as something to grasp, a way that we love people more, a way that we become a better preservative against the decay that was right outside these doors, a way that your life can have flavor and joy and love in it. Take hold of that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this reminder from your word, Lord, that salvation is a work that you do. If salvation were up to me in my own life, I would fail every single day. Lord, but even in the times that I do fail, and I sin, and I struggle, and I hurt, and and blame things on you, and blame things on other people, Lord, help us remember that this is a work that you do, and the end of this work for believers is the fullness of sanctification, the fullness of being glorified, the fullness of being in your presence for eternity. Lord, I pray as we uh, sing another song, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, that we would do these things in a worthy manner, that would use this time to glorify you. As we take the Lord's Supper, I pray that we'd look at that as a way to proclaim the work that you have done, to proclaim your death until you come again, and that we can take hold of that promise. And know it's not something we just hope for in the sense of we wish it'll happen. It is a promise that is done and over with. And you are coming. We thank you for all of these things. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.